This is an ABC podcast. Oh, oh, it's late at night and I'm waiting. My computer and I are waiting for this sale to start. It's 50% off. It's a twice yearly sale that happens to this dress company I love. All the ladies on the Facebook page are very razzed up about it. Oh, I want to get the Tahiti dress, says one person. Probably never go to Tahiti. This is ridiculous. Why do I spend my life doing stuff like this? I don't even need it. <laughs> I just want to buy something because it's, uh, it's a bloody discount, isn't it? It's cheap. There's nothing quite like the feeling of going, oh, it's in the post. I'm going to receive this little special package for myself. So I'm going to have to go in a second because it's going to start and I don't want to miss out on this. Five, four, three, two... I'm Veronica Milsom, and I'm not too embarrassed to admit, yeah, I get late-night urges. To buy clothes online, God, get your mind out of the gutter. And I bet you do too. But why? What's driving us to endlessly shop for things like oodies? No grown adult should be seen wearing that in public. I mean, I've done it and they're very comfy, but it is shameful. On this episode of Threads, I want to find out the psychology of why we buy. From the influencers... My video hit a million and it was insane. Yeah, those ones, but also the ones you can't see. They're going to use social media to hunt down their prey. And how marketers are using cutting-edge science to read our minds. Software right now could predict in real time what emotions you're going through. I'm going to figure out all the sneaky tricks fast fashion uses to make us click and buy. And how to stop our impulse buyers before they even happen. But before I enter the fast fashion matrix, I'm not the only one who's up at night being lured by flash sales. Hi, I'm Amy. And you could definitely say I'm a shopaholic. Why, you ask? Well, I just spent $525 on a handbag, which is half my pay from last week. Oh, and if you ever want to see something scary, just add up all you've ever spent on afterpay, you'll realise you've shopped away a literal house deposit and you won't sleep for a week. Whoa, a house deposit. I'm losing sleep just thinking about it. I called Amy before her shift at Kmart. Amy might work in affordable retail, but she's got expensive taste. What are the clothes you spend big money on? Anything. Yeah, a ball dress that I wore to an event last year. You've only worn that once and you probably only wear it once? Yep. Mm Mm-hmm. How much was it? $1,200. Woo! Yep. How did it make you feel? Oh, a million bucks. It was great. (laughs) We did an extra lap through the casino, like, the world needs to see this a bit more, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Apart from parading her flashy clothes around casinos like a Vegas showgirl, Amy's relationship with clothes doesn't seem overly strange. So, say I've just bought something, stoked. Love it. Like, you know, makes you feel confident before you're going into a meeting or a date or something. But then you dig a little deeper. And then... I don't know. I've had, you know, a stressful day at work or whatever. They just help you relax, get rid of the stress, you know? I just like that they dictate my moods, which they probably shouldn't, but they do. Like if I were to buy something right now, I would be riding that high and then start like in a few hours, I'd be like, oh, okay. And then tomorrow I'd be like, why did you do that? 
you've got to pay these payments off. All my money's gone again. That's when you're like stressing a bit. What am I doing? And then I go, oh, you know what will make me feel better? I'm going to treat myself. And it was just to do with that cycle. This all sounds eerily familiar. Last episode, it was Brooke who was going round and round between buying and remorse. That cycle is actually well known to science. It's called the hedonic treadmill. (sighs) Studies show that when you buy something, it makes you feel good. You get a big old hit of happy chemicals in your brain like dopamine. But like any good high, it fades fast and you're left chasing that feeling all over again. So marketers want to keep us on this happy hamster wheel. How do they go about it? I need, like, a marketing guru to tell me. I would not call myself a guru. I have a scientific background. So call me a marketing scientist. Oh, OK, OK. This is Patrick Renvoir, marketing scientist. He works in Silicon Valley with big companies like Facebook and is a leader in the field of neuromarketing, the fusion of brain science and money. He says traditional marketing, poof, that's so over. Traditional marketing does not work. Why? Because people don't know what they want. So about 22 years ago, we started to use neuromarketing. See, this was when a very smart Nobel Prize winning researcher figured out that the part of the brain we use to make decisions is, well, kind of dumb. But we have two brains, system one and system two. System one is what we call the primal brain. Human behavior can be better predicted by understanding the primal brain or system one. In fact, system one still wins today. Fundamentally, at the most basic level, we make our decision like reptiles. So, humiliatingly, we all have lizard brains. You, me, and the Nobel Prize nerd who made the discovery. And once brands realised we were basically lizards, they were able to predict what we were going to do before we did it. Don't believe me? Well, let's try an experiment. Grab a paper and pen if you got it. Yeah, that's fine, I'll wait. Okay, so I'm going to ask you four questions. Ready? Here we go. What's four times 655? What's seven times 95 plus three? What's the name of a tool? Name a colour. Was your tool a hammer? Was your colour red or blue? Hmm, how could I know this? Am I a psychic? No, it's science. By making you feel under pressure, I'm activating the primal part of your brain, which reaches for an answer quickly, which is why most people will end up with a red or blue hammer. So the primal brain is about 500 million years old. So it's not a brain that is very smart, but it's a brain that is very fast. So why is that? It's because speed is more important for survival than smarts. Think too much about a decision Okay, you're going to make the best decision, but if there is a threat around you, like a lion or a snake, then you're not going to survive. So we human beings are wired not to make smart decisions. We're wired to make quick decisions. And this primal part of the brain is activated by fear. They're literally scaring us into buying things, which is terrifying, right? So this is the first step in our process, and we call that diagnose the pain You have to go beyond their simple wants and needs. You have to figure out at the subconscious level what people really want. I'll give you an example. About 35 years ago, there was a small pizza shop and they were building home-delivered pizzas. 
One day they figured out that the number one pain is the anxiety of not knowing when the pizza will arrive. Yep, there is nothing worse than sitting at home wondering, where is that pizza? Every car that goes by might be my half pineapple, half anchovies deep dish. And that little pizza place came up with a slogan, and their slogan was 30 minutes or less or it's free. And that little pizza place is known as Domino Pizza, and they became number one in the business. So fundamentally, Domino's is not in the pizza business. They are a FedEx organization because being able to tell people that the pizza will be there in the next 30 minutes, that eliminates a very deep psychological pain. So if the best neuromarketers are diagnosing our pain to figure out what we really want, when it comes to fashion, what's our pain? I think the fashion industry is going directly after the ego of people. People want to feel special, right? And fundamentally, I think they want to rub it in the face of their friends. That's, that's the only real value for people, right? So people buy it to say, look, you know, I am good looking. The clothes that I'm wearing make me even better looking. And I have more chances to survive because my chances of reproductions get higher. Now, of course, nobody will ever admit that because it's really deep inside their unconscious. But that is, to me, what fundamentally the fashion industry is all about. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. It's like, hey, without our clothes, you're ugly and no one wants to sleep with you. Patrick, why is buying things on my phone so enticing? Like, why is it so hard to resist? People have an emotional attachment to their phone. So they tend to trust whatever is on their phone more than what they would trust on TV. You know, people don't love their TV, but a lot of people love their phone. They never turn them off. They, they make their phone sleep close to them and blah, 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 right? Uh, the other reason is people have a physical contact with their phone. When you're looking at your phone, you're holding it, right? You're sending a signal to your brain, which is my arm is in this position. I am holding something. When you're watching TV, you're not holding your arm like this, right? Your arm can be anywhere but not when you're watching your phone. Oh, yeah, so true. I'm cradling my phone all the time. The relationship is very deep. There's something else about our primal brain that's interesting. It's really lazy. Your lazy lizard brain loves it when things are easy. So brands have worked really hard to make paying for things as frictionless as possible. You've probably noticed this without realising. Tools like Apple Pay or saved credit card details or buy now, pay later schemes, they're designed to get our primal brains from wanting something to buying it with as little friction as possible. Just glide on through, super easy. Don't get your system too smart a brain involved. Ugh, she's a real Karen. She'll talk you out of it. Okay, so marketers are using these subconscious things, fear of missing out, trust in our phones and easy ways to pay to keep our lizard brains happy and keep us in that endless cycle of spending. Which brings me back to Amy. How is her phone playing into her problems with shopping? So how often are like influencers or social media accounts making you feel like you want to buy new stuff? A lot. I was thinking about this. I love an Instagram tag. And then I'll click on that, have a little have a little peruse, and I'll then follow that account or sign up for emails. And then next time you're looking for something, I'll go, oh, hey, and probably buy something then. Yeah, that's super common. I also love a celebrity tagged post. 
I know the Kardashians of the world have massive sway when getting people to buy, but what about the little guys of the influencing world? I found Dr. Jonah Berger, so he's an expert on this stuff. He wrote a book called Contagious, Why Things Catch On. And I asked him, what makes an influencer influential? It's an interesting question. I think when many of us think about influencers, we think about people that have a large audience online. So sort of these big celebrities that, you know, lots of people follow. But the challenge is for many of these people that have a large audience, we don't necessarily trust them either, right? Because we know they may be talking about a product or service, not because they love it, uh, but because they may be getting paid. But we're less likely to trust them than we might trust our friends. What I think is neat about micro, so-called micro-influencers is we're more likely to trust them because they feel like our friends, right? I mean, the true micro-influencers are our best friends, right, or our neighbors. And so the same thing as these individuals online that have smaller followings, the more people feel like they actually know the person and have a personal relationship with them, the more likely they are to trust them. If we trust people who remind us of our friends, brands might be better off hiring an army of micro-influencers rather than blowing their entire budget on Kim Kardashian. So tag posts, reviews, hauls from people just like you are pretty powerful when it comes to selling us stuff. So I scoured TikTok to find the right micro-influencer, someone I could trust, a potential BFF candidate. And after wading through what felt like a million videos of teens slapping each other with tortillas, I found Katie Francis. Welcome back to my channel. channel. <laughs> Your place looks very put together, Katie. There's a very neat wardrobe behind you and just like five items of clothes on a rack. Yeah, <laughs> but it is totally not reality. It is not at all what my life is like outside of online. I have, you know, piles of clothes everywhere and especially with the amount of stuff that I unbox. So literally my whole entire room piles of it. If you can't already tell, Katie's sphere of influence is fashion. How would you describe your style? Oh gosh, I would say all over the shop. <laughs> like sometimes I love a little bit of a grunge vibe, other days I love a chic vibe. I've just always been a, a fashion gal. Katie has about 200,000 subscribers and is everything brands are looking for. She's positive. I get to do this every day. Like, Try on clothes. Who gets to do that? <laughs> Has a dedicated audience. I would say that they're my second family. <laughs> Has a specific niche. It's one thing to see someone who's a model that's a pear shape and it's another thing to see a real-life person. And she keeps it real. You know, being a mum was incredible, but as <laughs> if any of you are mums, you might understand that it's taxing on you mentally and you almost forget who you are. I was falling into quite a deep depression where none of my clothes fit. I didn't want to leave my house. Um, I felt really isolated when I had my body change. I genuinely thought that I couldn't wear clothes to look good at that size. There's a reason Katie has so many followers. Katie is a plus-size content creator. She saw a need in the community. So I started to share those things and people were like, oh my gosh, I'm the same way. And I was like, oh my goodness, there's this huge amount of people out there that are feeling really alone. And so it was just this community that started to give me feedback on what might help and vice versa. And from there, it really just expanded. So do you shop a lot as well or is it mostly happening online? Oh, in person? Nearly impossible for someone size 16 plus. Hmm. Oh, no nightmare in person. <laughs> <laughs> Katie gets the latest plus-size fashions and tries them on for her followers. They can see what's new in store, how it looks, 
and hear a real person's view on it. It's always been educational to kind of show people what it looks like on me, especially the fact that I'm not your typical plus size body shape. Like I have that tummy apple kind of body shape less represented in the media. So I think it's really helpful to people who have a similar body to me to go, oh, well, this is actually a brand that I may actually be able to go and shop at. Katie started with a small, loyal following. She dedicated her time to buying clothes and releasing new fashion videos every day. Hauls, reviews, styling tips, steadily growing her audience until one day it all paid off. I signed in one day and I started having like heaps of notifications and I was like, oh, what's this going on? My video hit a million and it was insane. This is the kind of success brands dream of. She has 140,000 followers on TikTok. So if 1% of her followers bought one item of clothing five days a week for a year, hang on, just let me work out the math. Katie would sell almost 400,000 items for the brand she features. So without many followers and multiple videos going viral, Katie should be raking it in, right? It's definitely over the past year getting to that point. I would say that to an everyday person, it's probably not deemed that. Like I'm making less than I was making at age 20. But when you look at the fact that I enjoy my job as much as I do, it's a creative outlet. I personally don't earn a heap, but at the same time, it's enough that I am allowing myself to continue with this passion, yeah. Turns out this kind of earning is pretty common, with some influencers earning as little as a cent per click. Also, hang on a minute, in a lot of these cases, including Katie's, they're paying for the clothes out of their own pocket. This is messed up. This means that the same system that has Katie making as much as she did in her 20s is also keeping people like Amy in debt for the rest of her life. It feels a bit, like, shameful. Like a dirty little secret. Yeah. When Amy tallied up her afterpay debt, she realised it was about $30,000. There was a period when I was like, over 50% of my wage would go straight on afterpay payments. So if I was willing to spend $100 on a top, when I'm looking for a top, I go, well, if I'm going to afterpay it, I might as well spend 400 because I was going to spend 100 and that's, that's what the payments will be. Wait, wait, what? And I don't know, for some reason that logic is 100% in my brain. Do you have any advice for anyone who is using these things or, or thinking about it? If I could tell anyone, like, any advice, don't get it, like, biggest enabler. Never. Hmm, credit cards aren't new and lay-by isn't new, social media isn't new, but with their powers combined, is it just like a perfect storm? Someone who's been watching this a lot longer than me is Lucy Siegel. Well, social media has created social shopping. In fact, you might argue that some platforms, that's what it's there for. She's a journalist at The Guardian who's been covering the fashion industry for the last 25 years. She says financial institutions have found new ways to make us spend more than ever before. 
We also have an extra element, which is fintech, which are financial products, which I know you're really familiar with in Australia because you've had them for a lot longer than we have. And we're just getting to grips with them here. These are where you can part pay for purchases and they're used a lot in fast fashion. So you have these big fintech brands who are now sponsoring fashion weeks and all the rest of it. So very quickly have become part of fashion culture. And you don't even need the money in your account, which was one of the checks and balances to maybe stop you consuming. That's now gone. And I think that there will be some people who won't be able to stop their consumption and will get into trouble. Yeah, when you talk about people getting into trouble, um, I just want to play you something from a girl I met. Her name is Amy. Have a listen to this. One of my friends was like, when I was trying to be serious about it the first time last year, like really like, oh, I have to quit. Like, you don't understand. Like, it's really bad. She was like, the more I think about it, the more it makes me think of like a drug addict. If I was a drug user, I feel like everyone would have intervened way before now kind of thing whereas it's kind of a bit of a like a oh ha ha it's almost like a joke oh my god that's so chilling that actually is really upsetting that has just brought back one of my sort of greatest fears that this cycle will just speed up to such an extent that young women in particular who are the the hunted they're being hunted day and night by social media platforms for which there is no off, with a system of production for which there is no off. It will really, really impact their lives for years and years to come. I I hope they are getting some sort of help. So with neuromarketing, influencers and social media pressure, it's no wonder we have a bigger shopping addiction than ever before. But what do we do about it? I need answers. Okay, so... This guy is a leading brain in shopping addiction, Professor Mike Kyrgios. Emeritus professor. That's big. Okay. Turns out I got to him just in time. Um, So I retired um, a few months ago. Professor Mike Kyrgios is a clinical psychologist whose work led to compulsive shopping disorder being a thing you could officially diagnose. Do people have a hard time thinking that this is a real problem? I get, oh, it's just a bit of fun, or oh, my wife does it, or my partner does it. Look, it is real. 5% of the population have a significant buying shopping problem, right? That's a lot of people. 5% of the population? That's over a million Australians. And of course, there is the common, we all do it, the impulse buy, right? We all do it. But there is an ever growing group of people who have mental health issues that relate to buying. The buzz is around the act of buying. So they have urges, they have impulses, cravings. Everywhere you go, there's a sale or an opportunity. And then all of a sudden you have an urge and your whole consciousness is really around the need to buy. Quite often it's associated with bargains or FOMO, the fear of missed opportunities. He reckons kicking our addiction to clothes isn't as easy as some other vices. We are what we buy. (laughs) As far as the rest of the world is concerned, what they see us wearing, having, in a sense, is really caught up in our social identity. And that's why in people who have buying problems, we see a lot of problems around self-identity. I don't feel confident in the world, and I'm trying to hide what's on the inside by showing the world a particular 
aspect or element of who I am, who I want to be, who I don't want to be. Mike says whatever your triggers are, the best thing you can do is unplug. Because short of us all becoming nudists, which might pose problems in the workplace, there is something we can do about this. Rule number one in treatment, and this is a little trick that I learned when I was doing smoking cessation um, treatment decades and decades and decades ago, make it damn hard to get to that cigarette. So put it in a plastic bag, cover it with honey, put that in a plastic bag, stick it in your car, lock up the car, you know, give the keys to the car to someone else. So you can have a cigarette if you want, but it's going to take a lot of effort. So again, you're slowing down the process so that people have a get-out-of-jail card along every part of the decision-making pathway. What he's saying is so true. Sometimes when I want to buy something online, if I have to find my wallet, dig my credit card out, punch in the numbers, I'm like, ugh, I don't want it that much. Mike says we got to cut down on the other triggers. We could unfollow certain influencers or unsubscribe to marketing emails or even close our fintech account. Yep, yep, yep. If you're having particularly difficulties with, you know, the the PayPal stuff, then get some help around that because that's clearly a a high-risk situation. And I think if there are high-risk situations, maybe having a chat with someone as to what are the things that you can do and where can I turn to right now this very second to distract me from this urge. Go for a walk, do some exercise, do some mindfulness, do some yoga because urges like bubbles in a lemonade glass, if you leave the lemonade glass on the counter and go back to it the next day, not so many urges, not so many bubbles. Do something that will get you out of that headset. We have a short time on this earth. Make a count. You know, I've gone to a lot of cemeteries. I never saw one that said, wish I had bought that Prada bag, right? Wise words. Bubbles in a lemonade glass, hey? I mean, this guy is an emeritus professor. So if we follow his advice, when you get the urge to buy something, just act like warm, flat lemonade. His other advice was pretty good too. we got to stop those brain triggers. Makes sense, right? So today, I'm going to unsubscribe to some emails. I'm going to unfollow a few clothing accounts. And, oh, can I do it? I really don't know. Take my credit card details out of my phone. That's very convenient. I'll think about that one. But I do have to check in on Amy. Do you want help with it? Oh. I'm in a I-can-do-it-myself vibe at the moment, but, yeah, I think I will. What if initially you and I had, like, an account of Villa Buddy type situation where we could just like neg each other's potential purchases. We could send each other pictures, voice memos, contact each other, DMs on Instagram. Would would you be interested in that? Like, oh, that's shit, don't buy it. Yeah, but way more cutting. Oh. Maybe the next time you're scrolling aimlessly and feeling bored instead of buying something, just DM me. Yeah, that could be cool actually. I'll have to. Oh, I didn't think you'd be like, you're like a celebrity. I didn't think you'd respond. What Amy said gave me an idea. Could I be an influencer for people to not buy things? I mean, it's not going to earn me a lot of money. Feels like a bad financial decision. But what if I set up a hotline where if people had an urge to buy something, they could just call me and I could talk them out of it? 
Even if I stopped one person buying one T-shirt, I'll be a micro-micro-influencer, a nano-influencer. Stuff it! I'm doing it! <laughs> P.S. This is for real. You should actually call it, I dare you. Veronica's Don't Buy It Hotline. The fashion influence you really need. Okay, just when you thought we had the influencer stuff figured out, fast fashion is already one step ahead because there's a whole other machine out there that's even harder to fight. If she's coming to the mall every week, we need to give her a reason to buy. What is that emotional buy? What could we give her to buy? What could we give her to buy? That's next time on Threads. Hear it on the ABC Listen app. And before you go, if any of the content in this episode has been a cause for concern for you, please do contact Lifeline 13 11 14. Thanks for listening. Conversations. Spend an hour in the life of someone else. Suddenly I found the rope back under my armpit again. It came back in this rush. I'm, I'm having a seizure. Someone who has seen and done remarkable things. My mom, my sister and I, we were all sleeping on that bed together. At the baseboard of the bed, there was an iguana. Follow on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.